Lord, we do owe all to you. Lord, would you help us understand what that means? I think sometimes we miss it, Father. We use words like love. And Lord, we're not even capable of truly understanding what it means and expressing it, but you demonstrated what it meant for us when you went to that cross. And your love did run red. As you died, not just for us, but you died in our place. You took the penalty. You took the, you took the penalty for our mistakes, our shortcomings. Thanks, Lord, for doing that. And this morning, as we open up your word, Lord, would you just open up our hearts? Would you just let it impact us, Father? Let it change us. May we leave here changed, not because we've been to church, but because we've heard from the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would open your Bibles to the book of James, we'll continue on our study through the book of James. We'll be looking at James chapter 4 this morning. James chapter 4. You know, after last week, when we looked at James chapter 3, it was kind of a tough chapter because James, James really tells you like it is. He tells you what, what he expects and how a Christian should live, and he doesn't leave a whole lot of room for, for mistakes. And a couple people came up to me and said, that's kind of tough, you know. Can, can you maybe go a little easier on us? No, I can't. And I don't mean that to be mean, I mean it because it's not really me, it's the book of James. I'm, I'm just telling you what James has to say. I'm just sharing with you what James says about the Christian walk and what it means to be a Christian. And if that, well, if the shoe fits, wear it, I guess you could say. You know, if, it, if, it, if the Holy Spirit ministers to you and says, hey, this is an area that you need to work on, well, then I would suggest that it's something that you work on. I would suggest that it's not something you just dismiss. You're not going to overcome it in a matter of a week. But as, as we've studied James, if you've been with us, you've seen that there's quite a few things that James is very clear on about how we, how we act during trials, how we act during temptations, how we should respond with our mouth, how we control our tongue. He's been very, very clear. And, and well, the good news or the bad news is he's not going to stop now. He's going to continue being direct through chapter 4. And we're going to pick up together in chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, James chapter 4, verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Just one verse. He starts off with a question. He says, hey, where do wars and fights come from among you? And that word for wars means battles. Where do battles and fights come from among you? Remember who he's writing to. He's not writing to the outside the church. He's writing to the believers. He's writing to Christians. So when he says, where do wars, where do fights, where do they come from? Where, what, what's causing the wars and fights among the believers? Now, there's a lot of indication that we can believe this is verbal. They, this, would, this could not necessarily have to be physical wars. It's not nation rising against nation. It's person rising against person. But that word among, it also means in. So we could read it this way. We could read, where do the wars and fights come from in you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? You see, the wars and fights that happen outside of us, and he's talking to people in the church there. He's talking to believers. He's, you would think that he wouldn't have to write this to believers, but we know that there's wars and there's battles and there's fights among the church, within the church sometimes. But we also know that there's a war and there's a battle that rages inside of us too. Sometimes it's the battle that do the right thing. You want to do the right thing, but you do the wrong thing. You really have a desire to do the right thing, and you know what God would have you do, but you just do the wrong thing. And then you repent, and you go back, and you really know, at this time, today, I'm really going to do the right thing, and there's this battle raging inside of you. You ever had it happen to you? Yeah, yeah. Well, James is going to explain why it's happening. And as he explains to us why it's happening, he's going to teach you how to correct it. He's going to show us how to correct it. But he asks his first question, hey, where do they come from? Then he answers it with another question. Can you answer a question with a question? James and Jesus do. Jesus was always answering a question with a question. But James says, where do they come from? He says at the second half of verse 1, do they not come from your desire for pleasures that war in your members? And the answer to that question would be yes. That's what he's expecting. Don't they come from the desire for your pleasures? And that word for pleasures, it means this, pleasures of this life. 
pleasures of this life. The, the, the Greek word is hedon. That's where we get our word hedonism from. It's the pleasures of this life. There, there's a war inside of your body. Your body wants to enjoy the pleasures of this life. Would you agree with that statement? Sure it would. As a Christian, we say we begin to tell ourselves, no, we're not going to enjoy the pleasure of this life. We're going to place ourselves underneath God. So what James is saying, and let me just kind of summarize it for you real simply. He asks them a question. Hey, where do the wars and fights come from among you? From inside you, from among the body of Christ, from among the believers, where are they coming from? They're coming from the pleasures that are warring inside of you. Because inside of you exists the desire to enjoy all the pleasures that this life has to offer. True? Absolutely. Don't you have a desire to have all the pleasures? Don't, 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 that's where advertising comes in. Do you ever watch television? The commercials, what are they trying to do? They're, they're exposing you to pleasures of this life. They're trying to get you to buy something. They're trying to get you to, to, to give them money. They're trying to advance their product, whatever it is. Even the ones that are free, they still charge you shipping and handling. More than they should. They're still making money on you. They're all earning something. They're all trying to get you. They're trying to make you see there's something that you want that you didn't even know existed, but now you want to go buy it. And then you'll start to think, well, I need that. All the other kids have that. It happens with my kids. Abby, the other day, was watching some cartoon or something, and that commercial came on, and she said afterwards, Mommy, I think we need to go get one of those. Marketing works. It works. We get drawn into it if we're not careful. Why do you think we buy new cars? Look at the money that the car company spent on advertising and their commercials because they want to draw. You need one of these. Your old model's no good. You got to get a new model. There's so much more. It's so much more advanced. That's, that's, and then your body's going, no, my old model's good. Now, let me, let me explain to you how it works. This is what I'm talking about. Do you ever go out to a nice dinner and you, and, you, and you enjoy the dinner. And, and maybe it's a restaurant, there's a lot of food. And you have an appetizer, and you have your, di- you have your dinner, and maybe a soup. And, and then the waiter or the waitress comes back, and she says, or he says, would you like dessert? Would you like dessert? And you're going, no, I really shouldn't. But your body's going. And then she shows you that dessert tray, you know. Oh, that looks so good. And you know you're already full, and your body's going, no, no more. But you're going, oh, but that, that peanut butter pie or that whatever it is that you like... I, all right, I'll, t- I'll take it, you know? That's the war that's going on. And that same battle that takes place with dessert is battling everything that your flesh wants, whether it be drugs and alcohol, whether it be sexual addictions, or all kinds of things. It's all the same principle. It's all the same, same thing. But James is saying here, hey, these things are happening because of what's warring on inside of you. Now, let me just put it into another perspective. Two people going to church, having a fight. Never happened in this church, right? Never have any disagreements, never have any arguments, nothing like that here. I know, we're not talking about us, we're talking about other churches, okay? <laughs> Two people in church having an argument or a disagreement, okay? How is that possible? Because there's something warring in the members of the one, and usually it's pride. Usually one person's pride has been stepped on. But let me put it to you this way. If both people were walking in the Spirit, and both people were concerned about serving the Lord. And both people were doing the things that we mentioned last week in verse 17. The wisdom that is from above is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's without partiality and it's without hypocrisy. If both people are living that life where, that, where the fruit of the Spirit is just falling off of them, do you think there'd be an argument? No, because one of them would be willing to yield to the other one. But what happens is, is our pride gets stepped on. Our pride gets hurt. Our feelings get stepped on. And here's what we say. Nobody is going to talk to me that way. Nobody is going to do that to me. Nobody is going to... And then as humans, what do we do? We respond with another harsh word back, with, you know, whatever it is. On Thursday night, I shared a, I shared a, a situation where a guy way back in my past, long before I ever came to Maryland, before I, before I, even met, before I was even married, uh, had really wronged me in a way. And I, and I shared that I said, you know, I, if I ran across this guy today, I'd really like to punch him in the nose. I really would. I'd like to go up and I'd like to punch him right in the nose. And, uh, and then the Lord was really telling me, you, know, you, need to for, you need to let this go. You need to forgive this. You need to forgive. You, you really need to forgive. And, and so I did. I was working through that and I, and I forgave him. And then I, I kind of got to the Lord and I said, Lord, why, why is this happening? Why do I have so much animosity towards this guy why and you know what he told me it's your pride 
He stepped on your pride back then. That's what it was. He hurts your pride. That's why you want to punch him in the nose. Not because he deserves a punch in the nose, because you think somehow if you were to do that, it would make you feel better. But now, how, what would really happen if I was to do that? It'd be horrible. I'd have to come in here and tell you guys I punched some guy in the nose. And you guys would all leave and go find another church and go, well, that's not what I want my pastor to do. And I don't blame you. But the outcome would be bad for the momentary response to the flesh that I think would be good would really have a bad outcome. But it would have been my pride that caused all that. Because had I been considering it in the spirit of the Lord, I'd be inclined to forgive. I'd be inclined to build peace. I'd be inclined to work on these things. Maybe I can share what I did and we could talk about it or whatever. But my response in, in physical violence wouldn't solve anything. It would only create more problems. But it was my pride that wants me to do that. Now, James is saying here, these wars, they come from the desires in us. And look at verse 2. Why is this happening? Look at verse 2. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, what does that mean? Well, James is speaking spiritually here. He's not saying everybody out there is murdering. He's not saying everybody out there is is, uh, is is fighting and warring or coveting, but what he is saying is you lust. You have this unquenchable hunger for something that you think is going to bring you happiness and think is going to bring you joy, and you'll do anything to get it, but when you get it, you still don't find what you're looking for. Let me say it to you again. You have this desire, it is built in our human flesh, that we want to go after things that we don't have. If I can get a bigger house, it'll make me happy. If I can get a new car, it'll make me happy. If I can get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, it'll make me happy. If I can only get that next promotion at work, it'll make me happy. If I can get the next step in life, it'll make me happy. And what happens when you get it? What happens when you get it? It doesn't satisfy you. You're on to the next thing. Well, then, well, all right, I got my promotion at work. Now I need to, I need to get something else. And I need to get something else. And, I get, and I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm lusting... I'm coveting things that I don't have in hopes that I'll find what I'm looking for. And James tells it just like it is. He said the reason you don't have it is because you're not asking for it. The reason you don't have what you, what is it that you're looking for in life? What is it that you, you, you say, what is it in life that you're looking for? Well, I'm looking for, I want to I have fun. I want to be happy. Ask the Lord for it. But you're not going to find it in, in, a, in a hobby. You're not going to find it in a career. You're not go- I promise you're not going to find it in a relationship. You're not going to find these things. They're not just go- you just can't go out into the store and buy them. I'm looking for happiness. I'm looking for joy. Ask the Lord for it. I'm looking for peace. Ask the Lord for it. Because here's why. You might even say, you know what? I am asking, Rob. And he's not giving me what I want. Well, look at the next verse. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. If you're asking and not receiving, you're asking amiss. You're asking for the wrong reasons. Prayer is not to get God to do your will. We don't pray so we can talk God into doing what we want Him to do. Prayer is for us to discern what God's will is for our life. We certainly make our requests known to Him, but they should always be your will be done and not ours. That's what prayer should be. It's not for us to go, like, God's not like Santa Claus, and we go, God, I want this. And if you'll just, if you'll give me a big house, Lord, then I'll, I'll give it back to you, and I'll have everybody from the church over once a week, and we'll, we'll use this house for ministry. Or if you'll give me a boat, then I'll take everybody in the church fishing, and I'll use it for ministries. No, you're asking amiss. That's not what it's for. You're asking amiss. You're not, your heart isn't right. Your heart isn't right. And then he goes on with some serious words. Look what he says adulterers and adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god he calls out adulterers and adulteresses now that was an old testament phrase that's commonly used and what it means it was used towards the nation of israel They were called adulterers and adulteresses every time they chose something other than God. 
Adulterers and adulteresses, do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So adulterers and adulteresses, that was a phrase commonly used by the prophets to the nation Israel. And they used that word as any time that they would cheat on God. Anytime they would turn away from God, anytime they would follow the things of the world, anytime they would worship other gods, they were called adulterers and adulteresses. So it doesn't necessarily mean the physical sense of adultery or adulteress. It means this more spiritual adulteress and adultery. So anytime they would use that. And here James is basically pointing to the people in the church that he's writing this letter to, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's saying, hey, you guys are a bunch of adulterers and adulteresses. You're, a bunch, you're, you're, you're turning your back on God. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is, is, makes you an enemy of God. You can't have both. You can't have both. As Christians, we're called to live in the world, to be in the world, not of the world. We're called to, it doesn't mean that we move to an island and we, we you know, seclude ourselves and we don't talk to anybody that's not a Christian. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean we pull ourselves away from the world. It means we should be in the world, interacting with the world. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian and you don't interact with non-believers, shame on you. You should be around non-believers. You shouldn't, you shouldn't always uh, uh, retreat to the church or retreat to people who don't believe. Go, get out into the world. Take the good news that you have and share it with people that, that don't know. And don't be weird about it. Just share what God's doing in your life. You know, I always call it, don't be odd for God. We've all met them. They come and they tell you, and you're like, oh boy, here they come. No, no, Christians shouldn't be that way. People shouldn't see you coming and run away. They shouldn't. They should see you coming and go, I wonder what his take is on this. What's his take on the, on the political scene? What's his take on, on what's going on in my life? Or what's her take on this? They should, they should seek you out for your wisdom and for your guidance because they've watched how you've lived your life. We shouldn't scare them away because we're going to preach at them. We should be encouraging to them. We should, we should be friending them and reaching out to them, but not in a way where we're driving somebody away. The, the outside world should only choose not to be around a Christian because they feel guilty. That's a different story. Because they feel guilty, because they know what you stand for and they don't want to live, and, they, and it makes them feel guilty. I understand that because that was me for a while. I didn't want to be around Christians because I, did, they, they, I, knew, I knew I wasn't doing things right. I knew I was making mistakes. That's the only reason they shouldn't want to be around you. They shouldn't look at you and go, oh, I don't want to be around him or her because he's just playing out weird. He's just, just, he's fruity, you know. They should look at our lives and say, I want to be more like them. I want to live more like them. I want, I, what does he have or what does she have? I'm missing something. How, how is it there? How do they, how do they handle themselves that way? That, that, that's what I want to be like. I want to learn that. That's what should be drawing people into us. But James is clear. He's saying, hey, you guys have left the things of the Lord and you're, now you're chasing the things of the world. What does that look like in our society today? What would friendship with the world look like in our society? It would look like a Christian, somebody who says they're a Christian but doesn't do anything different. It would look like somebody who, who has no conviction in their life, who will go see any type of movie, who will use any kind of language, who, who has no conviction of, what, of what, what's right and what's wrong, who's just, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And they're just, maybe they're spending their money, they're squandering their money on, thing, on worldly things. Maybe they, they're, they're not interested in, in helping others, they're just interested in being selfish. You know, that, that's what a worldly person would look like. It's all about me. It's all about serving me and what I want. I don't really care about anybody else. It's all about what I want. It's all about me. If I'm happy, I'm, I'm looking for that next thing to make me happy. James says, shame on you. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that this friendship with the world is enmity, and that means to make an enemy of God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a choice in that statement. Do you want to be a friend of the world, or do you want, which will make you an enemy of God, or do you want to be a friend of God? Which choice, what, what, what do you mean? Well, it's clear. There's two different paths in life here. There's one path that says I'm going to go and follow after the things of the world. I'm going to do what the world calls success. I'm going to chase those things. And there's another path that says I'm going to follow the things of God. I'm going to do what the Lord calls me to do. I'm going to give God. You see, I don't even think as Christians, a lot of times people even consider, what would God have me do in this situation? What does God want me to do? Where does God want me to work? Where does God want me to live? Who does God want me to marry or be in a relationship with? As a Christian, as a follower of God, all of those things would be important, wouldn't they? If I want to make a choice to follow God, I have to then place myself underneath of him. I can't just make a statement that I follow God and never consider what he would have import, what, what's important to him. Well, where do I find those things out that are important to God? Right here. It's in his book that he wrote. 
It's for us to learn from. It's for us to study. It's for us to apply to our life. So he makes it clear, once again, the world or God, your choice. And now he proves it. He says in verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace, therefore He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, don't be confused by that verse. Verse 5 says, Or do you think the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, those are the believers, yearns jealously. Now let me put that into perspective for you. When you believe on Jesus Christ, the Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit will indwell us. It lives inside of us. you, you, You now have a helper to help you do what's right. Every time you choose to follow something other than the Holy Spirit in your life, that makes the Holy Spirit jealous. That lines up with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Your God is a jealous God. You know, it's the, it's the idea that, listen, I can choose in life to follow God, follow, and God and the Holy Spirit, three in one, it's the Trinity. I can choose to follow God, or I can choose to follow my flesh and follow des- the desires of my body. If I'm choosing to follow the desires of my body, I'm making friends with the world, and I'm going after everything the world thinks important, thinks is important. If I'm choosing to follow God, I am not letting my flesh or my body body lead me. I am leading my flesh. I am allowing my spirit to say, no, body, you're not going to do that. No, flesh, you're not going to do that. No, eyes, you're not going to look at that TV show or that movie or that picture or whatever it is. No, mind, I'm not going to let you go there because that's going to make me upset or make me worry. Do you see the difference? There's a battle that takes place in in the heart of man. That's what James is talking about here. It's the battle that's taking place with inside of you what to do. One moment you can be in the spirit, and the next moment you can be in the flesh because of a choice that you made. That's certainly possible. But James is saying, listen, the Holy Spirit is jealous. It's yearning for you when you follow something other than God. But look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. But, verse 6, he gives more grace. Don't miss that. He gives more grace. The Holy Spirit gets jealous when we follow things besides God, but He gives more grace. What would you do if you got jealous? Would you give more grace? Or would wrath come out? What would you do? Think about it. In a relationship? In a friendship? What what would happen if you've all been jealous at some point or another, right? We've We've all run across that. You get yourself jealous over something, whether it's warranted or not, what do you do? You're not happy, are you? That whole punch in the nose thing that I was thinking about, yeah, that's kind of what you feel. It doesn't make you happy at all. But here's what God does. God says, I'm going to give you more grace. I'm going to give you more grace. I'm not giving up on you. I'm still working with you. I'm still here for you. It's okay. I'm going to give you more grace. Now he goes on to say this. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. Now, what's the difference between the proud and the humble? The proud is the one that says, I'm doing it my way. I'm doing it my way. I don't need God's grace. I'm going to make myself happy. I'm doing it my way. I'm, this is my life. I'm doing it my way. And if you don't like it, then forget about you. This is my life, my way. No one's in charge of my life but me. That's not a Christian. A Christian says, God's in charge of my life. A Christian says, you know what? I know I've messed up in life. The humility that he's talking about there, that's the understanding of who God is and who you are. That's the ability to see God as my creator, me as his servant. That's the ability to look at God and say, all right, Lord, I was created by you for a purpose. Now I'm going to put myself under you and align myself with you. It's the ability to openly look at your sin. I don't mean openly to everybody else. I mean looking at your sin honestly going, you know what? I might clean up pretty well but I've got some bad things going on in my heart. I've got some bad thoughts. I've done some things in the past. Lord, I, I need forgiveness. That's humility. But the person who looks and goes, well, I'm not a bad person. Nah, I'm all right. I'm not, I'm not like any of these people. Never, never been on drugs, never killed anybody, never cheated on my wife, never done anything like that. Never done any of those really, really bad things, right? I'm not a bad person. That's, that's the pride that he's talking about. You think you don't need God, then 
okay. God doesn't force himself on anybody. God doesn't force himself. But you're right, everybody does need God. Everybody does. And hopefully someday you'll come to a place where you realize that. But those that are humble, those that are humble, those are the ones that say, Lord, I need you. We sang a song, Lord, I need you. I need you, Lord. I need you. I know where life leads without you. I've been down that road. I know, what's, I know what's coming next. I know the decisions I make on my own. I know what it's like to follow the lust of the flesh. I know it takes me back in the bar. I know it puts me back on drugs. I know it puts me back in pornography. I know it puts me fighting with my husband. I know it puts me fighting with my wife. I know it puts me fighting at work. Let me put it to you this way. If you're a person who has drama and you're always in fights and arguments everywhere you go, the problem is not with everybody else. It's with you. It's yourself. Because you have these things warring inside of you that you're warring against. I've told that to people, and they don't like to hear that about themselves, but it's true. We all know people like that. Nobody here. I'm talking about outside of church. Of course, nobody here. You know? Not here. Everybody else, so, you know? I'm kidding, of course. Here's the great thing. As James spells this out and says, listen, basically, and I'm going to summarize it, which path are you following? Are you following God or are you following the world? You come to a decision, and I ask you this morning, where are you, who are you following? Are you following God or have you been following yourself in the world? James says, if, you, if, you're, if your choice or your decision is, you know what? I think you're right, Rob. I think I have been following God. I mean, following the world. I really don't think I've been following God. How do I get it right? What do I do to fix it? Or maybe sometimes I'm following God, but sometimes I'm following the world. And I have this, that battle. I don't really like that battle. If you have that battle raging inside of you, it's because you're jumping back and forth. It's because you're following God one moment and following the world the next. And it creates this inner turmoil because you want to follow God, but then your flesh is saying this. How do I fix that? How do I solve that? It's real simple. James gives us the prescription. Look at verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. If you want to solve that problem, if you're battling inside yourself, if you're battling with other people, the first thing you need to do is submit to God. Submit to God. Well, what does that mean? It means to place yourself underneath of his authority. It means to allow yourself to be led by God. It means to place yourself underneath of God. That's what submission means. A servant has to submit to a master. It says, if I'm going to submit to God, I say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you want me to do. Now, well, we'll get there in a minute. That's the first thing he says, submit to God. The second thing is he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The moment you decide to submit to God, you can expect temptation to come rolling your way. You can expect it. But there's a promise here. If you submit to God, I promise you're going to be tempted. But I also promise, because the scripture says, if you resist the devil, he might flee from you, or to say he will flee from you. It says he will flee from you. He has to flee from you. There has to be, if you resist the temptation, it means you don't give in to the temptation, he has to flee from you. Doesn't that kind of make sense? If I don't do it, then there's no temptation. If I've made up my mind not to do something, there's no temptation, Right? If I've made up my mind, I am no longer going to... Well, let me put it to you in a positive form. When I first started coming to church, Sunday mornings for me was always... I don't mean here, I mean way back. Sunday mornings for me was always a, well, let's wait and see how I feel. It always depended on how Saturday night went. You know, did I work late? What happened? How did it go? So I'd wake up on Sunday morning and be like, oh, it's a nice day out, sunny South Florida. Man to go fishing. All right, I'm not going to church today. Let's go do something else. You know, and I would talk my wife into not going to church because we'd go do something. Let's do something together, honey. Let's, let's do something together. So there was always this temptation of not going to church. But the moment I decided I'm going to church every single Sunday, I'm going to church every Sunday. I'm not going to miss for any reason. Do you know what happened? The first Sunday you wake up and the temptation comes and you say, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not giving into it. I'm not giving in. So I go to church, and I go to church, and I go to church, and I keep going, and I keep going. I don't wake up in the morning anymore on Sunday mornings going, you know, I wonder if I want to go to church today. Good thing, huh? I settled, that, I settled that score in my heart when I said, I'm going to church on Sunday mornings. I had to do it with midweek service at the same time. I'm going to church on midweek service. I'm going to be there. 
And once you settle that score, you take that temptation away from the enemy. He can't use it against you because you've already made up your mind. And there'll be days that you wake up on Sunday morning and go, you know, I don't really feel that good. I got a bit of a headache. It's okay. I'm going to church anyways. And off you go. And you'll find out you feel better once you get there because you've settled it in your mind. You're not giving into the temptation. And Satan has to leave. He has to flee is what the scripture says. Now, there's some more here. Submit to God, resist resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You ever heard anybody say, well, I want to be closer to God, but I don't know how to do it. The scripture is clear. If I want to know who God is, I have to draw near to him. I have to draw near to him. How do I do that? How do I do that? It starts by coming to church and learning the word. It starts by reading the Bible to see what God has to say. It starts by praying. Well, I don't know how to pray. I've never prayed before. That's okay. You don't have to know how to pray. It's simply a conversation between you and God. You'll accomplish a lot more if you say, hey, God, what do you have to say to me? And just listen. Praying is not always, it's, it's, not a, it's not a Christmas wish list on what you want. It's really trying to discern what God wants for us. It's that, that heart that says, Lord, what is it that you want in my life? What is it that you want to do with me? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says this in the second part of verse 8, or the middle part. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Submit to God, resist Satan, draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Who do you think he's talking to there? He's talking to the church. He's talking to the believers. Are, are you guys all done sinning? Or is there still sin in your life? You're all done? No, okay. So I could say to you this morning, cleanse your hand, you sinners, and what, what would that mean to you? It would mean, hopefully, that you would say, you know what? There has been sin in my life this week, or today, or yesterday, or whatever took place. It would mean that, it, it would remind you to say, you know what, I do need to repent before the Lord. I do need to go before the Lord and, and, and repent and turn away from my sin. And, and just to remind you that to repent doesn't mean to say you're sorry. Okay, if, if I want to repent of my sins, it doesn't mean I go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry I did that. And then the next day I do the same thing and say, Lord, I'm sorry I did that. The next day I do the same thing and say, Lord, I'm sorry I did that. That's not repenting. Repenting, the word implies a 180 degree turn. It means I'm no longer walking in that. If I'm walking across the stage this way and I'm going to repent, I'm going to turn away and walk that direction. So that's what it, it's, it's, it means. I'm no longer walking in that direction. I'm turning away from what I was doing. It doesn't mean I won't be tempted to turn back and I won't turn back. And I can, I can repent many times. But the idea is I'm turning away from my sin. I'm no longer doing it. I'm no longer walking in it. I'm completely turning around from it. That's, the, that's what he's saying. I, I do that through repentance. Now, he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, he's going back to the idea of purification. It means to, to, to clean out the junk, to separate, to set aside. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And this is where Christians fall short all the time. They're double-minded people sometimes. I have one heart, there's one mind that wants to follow the Lord. I have one mind that wants to follow the world. And I, and I constantly live in this battle that's going on. I feel guilty about everything I do. I almost think it would be better at this point, just go follow the world. Just go, just go follow the world. And when, you, when you're done and you find that it leaves, leads you to nowhere, then come back and give all of your mind and all of your heart to the Lord. Because you're going to live forever on this fence with one foot in the world, one foot in the Lord, and you're, and you're here, and you're feeling guilty, then you're with the Lord, and you're feeling good, then you make up, mess up, and you're feeling guilty again, and you're going back and forth, back and forth. Please, if that's the way you're living, don't go evangelize to anybody, because they don't want to live like that. When we evangelize to somebody, we tell them there's freedom from sin, not a struggle. We don't have to commit the sins. You don't have to live away. There's re- live that way. There's repentance in place. There's freedom. There's forgiveness. There's no, we, don't, we don't have to, oh, come, come join the Christian struggle. No, maybe that's where you're at in the struggle, but, that's not, but you're not where you need to be yet. So what James is saying, if you've been in the world and you want to get right, if you do want to change, submit to God, resist the temptations of Satan, he'll flee, draw near to God, cleanse your hearts, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your, heart, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then verse 9 and 10, lament and mourn and weep, Mourn, mourning, turn your mourning into joy. Or I'm sorry, let me try this again. 
Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. The idea is realizing who we are in the sight of the Lord. Realizing that, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I fall short. Yes, I need salvation. Yes, I'm, I, can't get, I, I, I can't live in eternity with the Lord on my own strength or my own good works. It just doesn't work that way. That's what humbling myself in the sight of the Lord means. It doesn't mean I talk badly about myself. It doesn't mean, mean I have no, no self-esteem. It doesn't mean I have no self-confidence. It means I have that proper perspective of who God is and realizing exactly who I am as a sinner who falls short. And let me just clarify this. Well, what is it that you fall short of, Rob? I fall short of God's law. I fall short of God's will. I fall short of what God has said, this is the way that you're supposed to live. I fall short of God's standard. God sets the standard of perfection. Anytime we don't meet perfection, we've fallen short of something. It's called sin. It's where we miss the mark on something. The word for sin in the Greek was an archery term. They would hang up a hoop in a tree and they would shoot an arrow at it. And when they would shoot the arrow, if they missed the, missed the hoop, they would say, sin, I missed the mark. They didn't say it in English, I said it in Greek. But they would say, it was the idea, is I, missed the, I set the standard here, I didn't reach the standard I was obtaining, I sinned. That's what, sin, that's what the word sin comes from. When we sin, we need somebody, we need somehow to fix that sin. Contrary to popular belief, I can't fix that sin by doing a good deed. See, that's what a lot of times we think, well, I messed up here, I'll just do something good here. I messed up here, I'll just give money to the church here. I messed up here, I'll just go help my neighbor make dinner here. No, that doesn't fix the sin. The sin is, the standard is still there. You missed. You, you fell short. That's where the Savior comes in. That's where the salvation comes in because that sin requires a payment. It's a penalty. It's, 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 it's almost like... Uh, it, it, it would be like if, if I was to uh, go back to my police days and you arrest somebody and, you find, and they go to court and the judge and the jury find them guilty. And then the sentencing stage comes. But all of a sudden when it comes to sentencing, Jesus would stand up and say, no, no, I've already paid that price. It doesn't excuse the sentence. He goes and took it for us. In other words, I already served that time. I already did that. I, I, I took care of that penalty. It, there's, it's not, it doesn't exist anymore. That's what, he, that's what the sin needs. It needs something to cover it. And that's what the blood of Christ does. So James goes on here and he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brothers. He who speaks evil of, of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? It starts out real simple. Don't speak evil of one another. Why does he tell them this? Because they're speaking evil of one another. Word's gotten back to James that the people in the fellowship, the people in the church, are talking bad about one another. They're backbiting. They're saying things they shouldn't be saying. Even if somebody in our church makes a mistake, can you cover it up with them? Or do we have to talk about it? Do we have to always be saying, hey, did you hear what, did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear they really blew it? They didn't make it. Or can we, can we let them go? Can we let them enjoy the, Let them work it out with the Lord. Let the grace be there for them. You know, don't always be speaking evil because when you do that, James is saying you're becoming the judge. You're placing yourself in the position of being the judge. And the, the law, you're, you're, he, says, he says in verse uh, 11, and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. The law is the law of love talked about in Galatians 5.14. All the law, Paul said, could be summed up into this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I'm loving my neighbor as myself, I certainly can't be speaking evil. Because when's the last time you walked around speaking evil about yourself? I didn't hear anybody come in. You, you know, you never, you never find yourself gossiping about yourself. Let me tell you how bad I was this week, you know. Let me tell you, wait till you get a load of this. Did you hear what I did? We don't do that. But we have no problem saying, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe what they did? But, but we do it so nicely as Christians. Hey, can you pray for Johnny? Why? Oh, you didn't hear what happened to Johnny? <laughs> Johnny fell off the, oh, I don't want to gossip, but just pray for Johnny. 
And we can do it so nicely, you know, we really can. But it's all the same thing as we're talking about somebody that, that we shouldn't be talking about. Why? Because verse 12 says, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Who are you to judge another? Now, this is the favorite line, or this, isn't, this is one of the favorite lines for a sinner. Who are you to judge me? The Bible even says you're not supposed to judge me. Well, you can take a look at that word judge, and it means to separate. The word to judge, it means, I, as Christians, we do not condemn anyone to hell. I don't look at you and go, well, based on that sin, you're, you're bound straight for hell. You know, that, that was, but, but as a Christian, I have perfectly, within the liberty of the Scripture, to look at somebody and go, you know, your life really isn't lining up to what the Scripture says. There's nothing wrong with me saying to, to a brother or a sister, saying, you know, I've, I've, I've been watching you and I, the way that you're talking and, and the way that you're, you're acting, that's really not the way the Bible says a Christian should act. Well, we've been studying James in church and you know, James last week, chapter 3, was kind of rough and it talked about the tongue and, and your mouth just needs to be cleaned up a little bit. Judge not lest ye be judged, Christian. That's what you might hear back. But that's okay to say that as to a brother or sister in Christ. It's okay. And make sure you receive it if it's coming from somebody in love. But what, what James is saying when he's talking about judging, we don't condemn somebody to hell. We don't separate ourselves. We don't write somebody off and go, well, that person, they're just bound for hell. I don't want to see them again. That's, not, that, that's what he means. We don't just separate. We don't write them off. We don't cast this eternal judgment down on them because we don't have that authority. That's not your place. That's God's place. Because God's the one that gives life and God's the one that takes away life or allows life to be taken away. Because we're not guaranteed anything how many of you are guaranteed to be alive tomorrow well we think we will be we expect to be we hope to be some of us you know but look what the look what verse 13 says come now i think there's a little sarcasm there come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city spend a year there buy and sell and make a profit whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'll get involved. I'll do the God thing later in life. I'll follow Jesus later. I'll, I'll take care of that. I'll get right with God when I have, get married. I'll get right with God when I have kids. I'll get right. I'll, I'll do it later. Well, the truth is, and James says it so clearly, your life, my life, is nothing but a vapor. It's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. And you might be older thinking, you know, well, it's a pretty long vapor. Even if you live to be 100, even at 100, what is that, what is 100 years in the spectrum of eternity? Nothing, nothing, nothing. The the older I get, the faster life goes. Have you noticed that? The faster the years go by. You're like, wait a minute, what just, Christmas is, we're already halfway through January already almost. I thought we just put away Christmas decorations. We have this... We all consider tomorrow to be a given. We all expect to be here tomorrow. But the truth is, we don't really know if we will be. When we ask ourselves the question, honestly, what guarantees me being here tomorrow? Nothing. The only thing guarantees us being alive tomorrow is that the Lord wants us to be alive tomorrow. The Lord wants us to be there. Instead, James says, the humble thing to do is, I'll do this if the Lord wills it. I'll do that if the Lord wills it. If I can teach you guys nothing else, it would be this. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that you do. Don't just do things for the sake of doing them. Even in ministry, don't, get in, don't, don't, don't start a ministry, don't get involved in something just because it's a good thing to do. You have to ask yourself the question, is this what God has called me to do? Is it what God's called me to do? You know, we might, and, and someday down the road, we might say, hey, we need help in children's ministry. And you might say, all right, well, that'd be a nice thing to do, so uh, I'll go help out. 
I would say to you, is it what God's called you to do? Because if it's not what God's called you to do, it's going to be a burden to you. It's going to be a problem to you. You're not going to want to do it. You're going to be bitter at it. But if it is what God's called you to do, you're going to enjoy it. You're going to be blessed by it. You're going to bless the kids. You're, going to be, you're, going to, you're not going to be able to wait to do it. Now here's the catch to the whole thing. If you do it and you're not called to do it, you're getting in the way of somebody else that is called to do it. What? If you do it and you're not called to do it, you're getting in the way of the person who is called to do it. And the person who's called to do it might not be the most qualified. You might even be more qualified than they are to do it. And I use children's ministry as an example, but it could be anything involved in the church. You have to do it because you're called to do it. Otherwise, you're just getting in the way of somebody that is called, and you're, you're kind of getting in the way of their spiritual growth just because you have to do it or because you want to do it. James is clear, and we'll close with this thought. Verse 17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And James kind of picks up anybody here that would say, you know, I haven't been that bad of a person. I haven't done that bad. I've taken care of my family, earned a living, provided everything. I haven't been good. I haven't been that bad. I don't understand. I don't really need this. James would say, listen, if ever in your life you knew the right thing to do and did it, that's sin. That's missing the mark. That's missing the mark. You've fallen short. If ever in your life you've done the wrong thing instead of the right thing, you knew what you should have done, but you didn't do the right thing. That's sin. That's what, that, that alone, just that one instance, is, is the reason that we need a Savior. Just for that one time, that one thing. Now the blessing is, it's not just one time. It's not just one thing in our life that causes us to need a Savior. It's okay, it doesn't bother me. It's not just one thing. Usually it's over and over and over and over again. The closer I get to God the more of a sinner I become. The less sin I commit, but the more I see the sin in my life. Let me put it to you this way. Before I followed Christ, you would look at my life and you could, you could say sin, the sin meter would be going off left and right. I was drinking a lot and partying and very worldly and all that kind of stuff and sin everywhere, you know, all kinds of sin. And I always thought if I can get rid of this one thing, then I'd be okay with the Lord. I'd be okay. Then I'd be, then I'd be good. Then I'd be church-worthy. Then I'd, then I'd be all right. And then as I began to follow the Lord, and He began to clean up my life, and He began to change things in my life, and people around me began to notice. Now today, I don't do any of the stuff that I used to do. But I still have a mind, and I still think things I shouldn't think. And I realized today, you know what? I thought I wasn't that bad back then. And I thought if I could just quit drinking and quit partying and quit doing some of these things and quit lusting and then I'd be okay. And once I got past that, I realized, you know what? I still have a long way to go. I still, I still, I'm still, I'm still not where I need to be yet. And that's okay because I'm one of you guys. I'm only here because God's called me to teach you the word. I'm not, I'm not here to be revered. I'm here to just be like, hey, I'm one of you. I'm sharing with what God's sharing, what James is sharing. I don't do any of those things anymore. If I, if I did, I wouldn't be qualified to stand here. But if we've ever fallen short, it's where we need the Savior. Well, how do I do that, Rob? How do I get right? How do I? The beautiful thing about the Lord is it's real simple. All you have to do is ask. Ask for forgiveness. Make a promise to repent. Tell Him you're going to follow Him. It's not a prayer that we pray, it's a condition of our heart. I can't say, all right, pray this prayer and you're good. That's not necessary. That might, may or may not be true. What the Lord looks at is where is your heart at this morning? Is my heart in a position of repentance before the Lord? If that's the case, then congratulations. You, you can enter into the salvation of the Lord. But saying something out of your mouth doesn't necessarily make you enter in. That's evidenced by some of the big churches where thousands of people get saved every year. They have altar calls and the people flood the aisles. And nothing ever happens in their life. There's never any change. Because they've just walked forward and they've prayed a prayer. And they've said, you know what? Well, I, you, told, you talked about heaven and hell. I don't want to burn in hell, so I want to be good. That's, that's what I call fire insurance. You just want to keep from burning up. That doesn't save you. The, the condition of my heart is what saves me. It's fire. It is. It's fire insurance. Right? I just, I'll sell you fire insurance. If you want that, stand up, pray a prayer, you're good. No, that, that wouldn't save you. That would lead you astray. There's too many people walking around thinking they're saved and they're not. 
I think salvation comes when my heart or your heart says, you know what, Lord, I want to follow you. And that doesn't always come from one Bible study. Sometimes that comes from many, 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 many studies where you get to, rev- get to see who the, who, who the Lord is as He reveals His heart through, you, through, the, through His Word to you personally. But if you're in that position this morning and you've never made that choice, I encourage you during the last song, just bow your head, close your eyes, and talk to God. Tell Him you're a sinner. Tell Him, tell him you need salvation. Tell Him you want to follow Him. And it happens just that simple. Just that simple. There's, there's no fancy, you don't have to, there's nothing fancy about it. It's just, a, it's a condition of my heart that I'm, from now on, I'm following God. And at that moment, you will know. Being saved is like having a cold. You know it. You just know. You, do you ever have to wonder if you're sick? Or you have a cold? No. How do you know you have a cold? Well, there's symptoms. I get a runny nose. I get a sore throat. I don't feel good. I just know I have a cold. Being saved is the same way. There's symptoms that go along with it. James would call them works. Changes my outlook on life, changes the way that I think, changes the way that I act towards my wife, changes what I say, changes things about me. It's just that simple. It's real, it's real easy. But there's no magic wand, there's no pixie dust, nothing like that. But if that's you this morning and you need to get right with the Lord, do it on your own. Do it quietly before Him during the last song. Just bow your head and close your eyes. The only thing I ask is that if you do that, come tell me, because I want to share in it with you, because the Bible does say we have to confess with our mouth. Let somebody know that you made that choice this morning if you did. Father, we just thank you for this time in your word. Lord, and although James is direct and he's bold and he can even be hard to understand sometimes, Lord, may we just, may we simplify it. Lord, I know that we all experience that war waging inside of us. That war to follow you or that war to follow ourselves or the world. Lord, I pray that each one of us this morning would renew our commitment to you. I pray that we would be focused on you, Lord. That we would submit ourselves to you. We would resist the devil that we would have a heart that says, I want to draw near to God, that we would cleanse our hands, and that we'd purify our hearts, setting ourselves aside, no longer being double-minded people, Lord, that we would be lamenting and mourning, maybe even weeping. And we humble ourselves before you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.